And the reality is nobody looks at a person who was betrayed and says, what an idiot. How did they not know? I can't believe they were so blind to this. What they do is, gosh, what an asshole for cheating on them. I can't believe that. Hi, Lane. How's it going? It's going good, Sean. How are you? Good. Welcome to the Love Drive Podcast. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Lane Allison. I am a couples coach. Um, I've been doing it for a few years. I absolutely love it. And I'm here to answer any questions about relationships, conflict, intimacy, you name it. I'm here. Okay. What's a couples coach? Such a good question, John. (laughs) Um, A couples coach is very similar to a couples therapist with some really important distinctions. And the way I like to describe this is by talking about who would go to a couples coach. So if you're a couple and you want to work on your functional skills, communication, conflict management, um, maybe you're struggling with intimacy or desire, A couples coach could be a really great fit for you. We do a lot of exercises. We really focus on the present and the future. And I give homework assignments. I would say that's like the nuts and bolts of coaching. If you're a couple that has all of those things, but is also struggling with a mental health diagnosis, for example, say PTSD or um, bipolar disorder, and that is affecting the dynamic of the relationship, that's when I would say you'd want to go to a couples therapist. And at the end of the day... um, it's important to find someone you have really good rapport with, too. Is is that important? To find someone you have good rapport with? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, here's why. When you're working in couples, anything, couples therapy, couples coaching, you name it, it's an extremely vulnerable experience. You're talking to somebody about things that you generally don't talk to anybody about. And if you don't feel like you trust your practitioner or if you don't... Um, feel safe, or if you feel judged by them, that's going to really limit the progress you can make. Yeah, it's interesting. People say, you know, find a therapist or coach that you really connect with. And in my experience, it's always been really easy. I mean, in my experience, the the two therapists that I've worked with, I, I didn't like interview them or anything. I'm just like, okay, you're my therapist now. Let's get to work. Yeah. And worked with them for like, you know, three years, one of them, and now going on four or five years with my current therapist. So I think I just got really lucky. I think it's a combination of you got lucky. There are, you know, mostly great practitioners. Most of the people who go into the field have wonderful intentions and are lovely. And yeah, maybe you're an easy patient. Um, Okay, so let's just dive into a bunch of questions. I asked people on Instagram some questions and we're just going to popcorn style. You're also allowed to ask me questions or how... You know. I probably will. Okay, good. Um, are you ready? I'm super ready. Okay. And I haven't prepped any of these. So if there's, you know, some awkward pauses, that's me trying to figure out where we're going to go. So can a broken relationship that has many issues be resolved? Yes. And? It depends. I mean, it certainly depends on the issues. Um, let's say you're a couple that struggles with conflict and what... This is so common. This is what I hear all the time. 
the way conflict goes will be something will trigger tension in the relationship. And due to a lack of de-escalation techniques, maybe due to a lack of trust in the relationship, maybe due to a lack of intimacy or um, positive interactions, the conflict starts to escalate. And it gets increasingly heated until someone either says something or does something that's destructive and they likely don't mean and it's of sober mind or someone physically leaves. And that particular dynamic is something that has been proven to be um, proven to be adjustable, changeable through all types of interventions. I'm trained on the Gottman style of intervention and that really focuses on training out certain behaviors that are predictive of divorce, like criticism, defensiveness, um, stonewalling, and contempt, but also practicing more constructive skills, like how to repair mid-conflict, how to de-escalate, how to soothe both your partner and yourself. And those types of issues, that's an example of an issue that is very changeable. So you have to have tools, and I'm guessing that both people need to be willing to do the work. That's ideal. Yeah. Esther Perel likes to say it only takes one person to change a dynamic. And I think there's some truth in that. But ideally, both people would be on board with putting in work. It breeds trust. I agree with what she says. I think I am have more often than not said, hey, it's going to take two. You know, you got to yeah. come to a compromise. You got to meet in the middle. But I also have the experience of me either accepting my partner's behavior mm -hmm. or me changing the way I interact or the way even I see the issue or the conflict, like having a different mindset or a new perspective can completely change, you know, the conflict or it can even dissolve the conflict because it becomes a non-issue because I've resolved it in myself. Yeah. And I think to that point, it probably depends on what is the magnitude of work that really needs done. And so, you know, if it's something relatively minor, one person could do that work on their own, feel really good about it, feel like it's personal growth, step forward. If it's a mountain's worth of work, it's going to be hard for one person to climb that alone. That would breed resentment. And one shouldn't have to do everything. No. Right. No. Like it's a really, I mean, I like to define relationship as two or more people working towards <laughs> a common goal. I want to be inclusive of polyamorous relationships. Yeah. Um, two or more people working towards a common goal. I like that definition a lot. So we have to, I made that up. We have to, <laughs> uh, you know, we both have to be willing to do some of the work that is going to move us towards this promised land, whatever that is. I, I mean, that's the sort of relationship that I would want to be in. And that's the style of couples coaching that I um, that I do. I often look for balance within the relationship, how to restore balance. So I also think that it again, this is sort of a dynamic that happens often on uh, on this podcast is that I speak to people that are are like experts in the field or thought leaders or have a lot of background and are, are like well-trained in like soft, gentle communication and self-aware. Yeah. And I also think that that is not the typical dynamic of relationships of two people who are two or more who are struggling in their relationship. No. And it's also not necessary. Like there are so many different styles of relationship. You don't have to be a soft communicator. You can be extremely blunt and at times abrasive and still have an extremely meaningful and positive and happy relationship. It's just not correlated with like success. But what is 
correlated with not not success what failure i guess is the word mm-hmm. um is having contempt yeah stonewalling and what are the other two horsemen um so there's a, so there's the four horsemen which are criticism defensiveness contempt and stonewalling and contempt i feel like some people just aren't familiar with what contempt means it is like criticism so criticism would be hey um you know you spend too much money and then contempt would be not only am I criticizing you, I'm raising myself up in the process. So I'm looking down on you. I'm almost sending out the message, I deserve better than you. And that is something that is the most predictive of separation, in addition to a few other things. But yeah. So the the, the amount of money that I spend is none of your business. I'm the one who makes it. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's good. <laughs> is that Or is that defensive? <laughs> that would be defensiveness, wouldn't it? Um, there's some defensiveness in there, but say it again. I mean, how do you argue with that though? This is my money. It's my money. I make it. I could spend it however the hell I want. When you start making this kind of money, you can do whatever you want with your money. Yeah. I think that's a, I mean, listen, prenups are a really interesting space and financial, financial division is a really interesting space. Every relationship finds a different financial balance. I don't have like set rules or guidelines about the way that the couple should do it. Some people really prefer everything to be separate. Some people want to feel like if we're on a team, everything is shared. So, I mean, the o- that would only be a problem, what you just described, if the partner of that person really didn't like that approach, really wanted to um, have a share of the finances that we're talking about. Well, I think personally, a joint account is a good idea, but then also discretionary spending for each partner. That doesn't have any supervision or like, um, it's just, yeah, there's no, no oversight. There's no oversight. Like I can buy a new snowblower yeah. and it was within my, you know, the limit of my discretionary spending. I love that. I think that couples come up with really creative solutions to this. In a former relationship of mine, we were living together and there was a debate over who is contributing more financially to the relationship. And in the end, we settled on having a joint credit card for all relationship expenses and then splitting that bill at the end of the month. So there could not be any sort of ambiguity about that. And what was nice And I'm going to sound like a traditionalist in this, but what was nice is when we would go out to dinner or meals, he could pay. And there was not like a splitting thing, which is sort of, for me personally, kind of um, adjusted the mood in a way that I didn't like. But he could pay, but you were splitting. But I was splitting at at the end. end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I would, I'm the type of person who would make an argument that the new snowblower is actually a relationship expense. Because it, it falls, it falls under, you know, home maintenance and, you know, our shared living space. That would just depend on whether or not you agreed on, um, whether or not the snow needed to be blown. <laughs> blown. Right. Could it just be shoveled? <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Then I would invite you to come shovel with me. Well, that's nice. If you didn't, <laughs> unless you didn't <laughs> like shoveling. Um, all right. So before we jump to a new question, you 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 talked about escalation, de-escalation techniques. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, this is a way to sort of um, like bring down the temperature of a conversation that is getting heated or a conflict that is like sort of snowballing or getting out of hand. Yes, exactly. Okay. What do you, what are, what are they? Yeah. What are they? I don't, 
I don't know. I might be doing some of these without knowing that I'm doing them. Yeah, there are a lot of them that are unconscious. Um, Things that I see my clients do all the time. One that's really common is just yawning. And that is slowing down your breath rate. And yeah, yawning is a great coping mechanism. It brings in more oxygen. It takes a pause. Um, And a lot of people aren't aware that they're doing it, but it's a way of self-regulating. Taking deep breaths is another one. Um, Fidgeting is something that you see a lot. Or even body language, like slowly approaching a fetal position to feel safer. That is something that people do unconsciously. Like just sort of like curling up into a ball. Like on the couch, maybe not on the ground. No, not on the ground usually. (laughs) Not in my sessions at least. Um, Conscious de-escalation techniques that people can do. Ask for a break mid-conflict. This is really tough for a lot of people because... Once they start a conflict, they a lot of people really want to finish it. They want to get to resolution. The problem is sometimes when you stick it out, it just, like I said, it can spiral out of control and the temperature keeps going up and up and you do more damage than good. So someone asking for a break, hey, I'm going to go for a walk. It's so important that they then say, I'll be back in X amount of time. So the other party doesn't feel abandoned in the conflict. Um, changing the subject, talking about literally anything else, going and watching Friends on TV Um, any sort of shift of attention is good. Um, physical activity is really good. Um, but these, these are strategies that you need to tell someone that you're going to go watch friends. You can't just mid fight, turn friends on. You can't start doing kettlebell swings. No. While you're getting, yeah, I mean, you could, you, I think you would have to say like, Hey, can I just bang out one set of swings real quick to help me crank down? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, people do just go do these things without announcing to their partner. And the damage that that causes is the partner is left there feeling like we were just in the middle of something. Are we going to talk about this again? Is there going to be resolution? And in the worst iteration of this, a partner will just up and leave the house and, What's important to note in that situation is a few things. One, the partner that feels that they need to escape the house is almost certainly physiologically flooded and they're looking for an escape. They're feeling trapped. They feel helpless. They feel like this isn't going anywhere. And the physical act of leaving the house is going to relieve a lot of anxiety for them. So for par- for people who have partners that have that tendency, my suggestion to that couple is often for the leaving partner to announce, I need to go for a walk, go to my car, go to whatever, um, and I will be back either when I've calmed down in 20 minutes, or you know, I will tell you when, if it's not 20 minutes, I will give you another estimate of when I'll be back. That lets the partner who's being left, I'm not being abandoned. But it is, if it can be, tolerated and for some people it really can't because of a massive fear of abandonment but if it can be tolerated let them leave um because if you don't they their anxiety just gets sort continues to get out of control and the situation usually escalates further and what do you mean by flooded or flooding yeah um the Gottmans in their assessments of couples like to put pulse pulsometers pulsimeters um things that measure your heart rate on their clients, and then they do what's called a reenactment, which means they ask the couple to try to solve a conflict in front of them. 
So physiological flooding occurs when the heart rate exceeds something like 95 to 100 beats per minute. And it's a signal that your body is starting to enter that emergency fight or flight or paralyzed mode. Um, you're starting to become, it's starting to become very difficult for you to process what your partner's saying. You're starting to feel overwhelmed and you're starting to feel like you need to respond in an emergent way when there's not actually an emergency happening. Um, this is often what's occurring for people who are stonewalling, which is just like they completely disengage. They're staring off in the distance. They're not responsive. That person is almost always physiologically flooded. And what's interesting about that is it typically takes... 20, 30 minutes for somebody to fully calm their nervous system. So it's not it's not super easy to recover from. And I, um, if I could tell couples anything, it would be just take your time, slow it down. There's no rush to finish this conflict. Yeah, it sounds like when your nervous system is all jacked up, that logic goes out the window. Your ability to have an argument in like a calm way is just like not possible. And then it's two people either fighting or fleeing or it just becomes really complex and conflict laden. Yes. Yeah. And it's hard to tolerate over a long period of time, that type of conflict. So someone says here, how long is reasonable to wait for the rest of the conversation if the other needs to cool off? I think a couple weeks. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, anywhere from, like I said, 20 to 30 minutes, because that's typically how long it takes for a human to calm their nervous system from that state to 24 to 48 hours. It just depends on what the relationship can tolerate and how uncomfortable that distance is for the other partner. Yeah. 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 So go, yeah, you can go for a walk around the block. I've done that before, or you can mm -hmm. go on a short hike or you could say, Hey, look, let's just talk about this on Monday. Yeah. Can we, can we talk about this on Monday? That, that yeah. would give me enough time to just like calm down and process some of this stuff. I'm not leaving. I promise I'm coming back, but I, I would love a couple days to process this. Yeah. And introducing that behavior into a relationship, there's often resistance to that because there's a lack of trust as to whether or not the leaving partner will actually come back and address the conflict and bring resolution, um, which makes the change into this dynamic kind of painful, especially for the partner who's staying. The anxious um, partner. The anxious partner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they can both be anxious in different ways, but um, that's why it's just so important if you are the partner who has the need for space to every time you do that, come back and start building that trust that I will always return to you and we will always find a resolution to this, whatever the thing is that we're doing. Yeah, you know, as much as possible, do the thing you said you were going to do. Ideally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as much as physically possible. I, so I, uh, I was a yeller. Ooh. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So before I got sober, I was dating this woman for four years. I had zero conflict resolution strategies at all. Right. For me, whoever yelled the loudest one, that was sort of like what I picked up along the way which is not a winning strategy. And for her, it was to run. So we had the yeller and the runner. <laughs> and nothing ever got resolved until we got into couples counseling at 22. That is young. That is young, yes. Um, I'm forever grateful to Dr. Jay Talkoff, my therapist in San Francisco. And 
then we learned that. So for me, I learned that there is a spectrum uh, between mildly annoyed and blind rage. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that there was that and that I could, you know, I didn't have to wait to blind rage to bring something up. I could just bring it up when I was mildly annoyed. And Mm -hmm. then we would dissolve conflict a lot quicker. And she learned to like stay or to communicate that she was leaving, but that she was coming back. And so we learned these tools along the way that that we never learned anywhere else. Like, there's no conflict resolution education. No, shouldn't there be? Um, that's I, impressive I, for a 22-year-old. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know. I mean, insurance was paying for the therapy, so we're like, whatever, you know, it's free, let's do it. Yeah. Um, but I also really loved her and I wanted it to work, right? So that was our commitment to the relationship to wanting to make it work. And we knew there was something wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's usually pretty clear to tell when something's wrong. And I am, um, I identify with being the yeller, so I can empathize. You, you're also a yeller? In the past, yeah, I've been a yeller. Oh, interesting. Not a runner, <laughs> huh? Not a runner. <laughs> Let me go through these questions real quick. Okay. What cues early in relationship tell you how to communicate with someone during conflict? So basically, like, how, how do you know how they deal with conflict? Um, I know. Toughy. Beyond having conflict with them? Pretty tough to tell. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to know how someone is going to respond to a difficult situation until you're in it. You know, there are like there are maybe subtle cues you can look for, but. I would almost be asking the question, why is this something that you're filtering for? Is it that you know for sure you don't want to be with a yeller or a runner? And so you're trying to filter that out. You could ask them. Um, Yeah. How have you dealt with conflict in the past? I mean, every time I suggest something like that, they're like, well, they can always lie. And it's like, yeah, I know. But for the most part, I feel like the way you see the world is like shapes the world that you live in. The energy you put out is the energy you get. Okay. That's a, that, that works too. <laughs> I tend to think that people are good and they don't generally lie or lie to me. So I have that sort of positive outlook that like most people are good or good enough. Yeah. And I think there's an approach to that. And I generally agree with you. Um, I give people the benefit of the doubt pretty much all the time. But even if you, even if that feels really uncomfortable, it's okay if you get lied to and then realize you were lied to and then leave. Like, that's okay. You're not a fool for having been lied to. That's on them. And totally. I think, you know, the only thing to be really, really concerned or aware of are any sort of like grooming behaviors for domestic violence. And beyond that, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Related to this, I was actually talking to my therapist about DV came up in our in our session today mm-hmm. because I was I was saying something along the lines of like, you know, sometimes people will ruin a relationship by being like really demanding about what they want, right? Mm-hmm. Like they want the relationship so bad that they will be like extra needy or, you know, they'll they'll somehow push the other person away. 
Through their massive need for the relationship. Through their massive need and their massive desire for the relationship, right? So the strategies that they employ to keep the relationship together actually ends up pushing the other person away. I've done this. I don't know what this has to do with domestic violence, but I've done this. Okay, so what what she said (laughs) was that in cases of domestic violence, this is actually one of the dynamics being played out. Right. Is that they don't they want and and I'm still fleshing this idea out because I just talked to her like an hour ago, Mm -hmm. but they want the relationship to to not change so badly because they want to keep the like the they they, well, they don't want their partner to change in any way. But Mm -hmm. they also want to keep the good parts of the relationship that they had more of in the beginning that they're willing to be violent in order to maintain homeostasis. Yes. And and then and what it does is it just destroys the relationship completely. I mean, yeah, domestic violence will do that for sure. Um, that's an interesting, like taking the domestic violence out of it because it's just an area where you and I don't shouldn't be talking about. It. We shouldn't be talking. Yeah, about we it. don't have the expertise. <laughs> I agree. Um, I think that what you described, the dynamic you described earlier of having a massive need in a relationship, wanting the relationship so bad that you end up pushing the other person away, happens all the time. I am super guilty of this. I have a really strong, what I would call repair drive. So if me and a romantic partner are in conflict in any way, and I think all of my exes have been to this, um, after that happens, let's say we got off the phone, let's say it's like a weird conversation. Within the hour almost, I will call them and find something to apologize for because I really want to be back on good terms. That's something that I wrestle with. And while that's kind of a lovely long-term partnership quality, Mm -hmm. in early dating, it's a bit of a problem because it doesn't allow for space for the other person to self-reflect on the interaction themselves and ask themselves, what happened there? Is that indicative of you know, me being in a bad mood, them being in a bad mood, a lack of compatibility. It doesn't give them the space to understand what's going on. And it also, I'm not asking the question, what's going on? My first reaction is, what did I do wrong? Instead of what just happened there? And that sort of blinds me to, or or the person who's experiencing this, to any potential, I don't like using the word red flag, but any potential early issue that would be worth addressing. Um, So, and I think that this ends up pushing someone away because they start to feel a little like suffocated by that. Like a little bit like, give me the space to figure out what's going on here. I mean, I'm a big fan of space in a relationship. Not, Mm -hmm. Not because I have avoidant tendencies, but because I think that there's a lot of beauty that can come from space, right? So if you're an anxious person and your partner has asked for space, that is going to require you to sit with the discomfort of not knowing mm-hmm. everything or how your partner feels about you in that moment. And I think it's actually very powerful to be able to sit with unknowing, to not always have to know, to sit with the discomfort of like, God, I feel embarrassed, I feel guilty, I feel sad, and mm-hmm. to not always have to like for that to be soothed by the other person right away. I couldn't agree more. And it's something that I'm trying to learn. So I'm learning. So someone, yeah. someone here says, my boyfriend needs to cool off, but I want to resolve the argument ASAP because I want to get over it to feel better. 
I mean, that's exactly what we've been talking about this entire time. Um, I would parrot literally what you just said, which is learning how to be, um, learning how to sit with the discomfort of the conflict and recognizing that in doing so, you are improving the odds of having a um, lasting resolution to the conflict. You might smooth things over immediately in a way that does not actually get at the issue or the unmet need. Um, and then this will just happen again. And so if you allow your partner the space to go, cool off, reflect, and you do the same, when you come back together, almost undoubtedly, you will have a better understanding of what occurred between you. You will be of more sober mind. And I use that term a lot just to mean like your heartbeat is now at a normal level. You're not going to be in that emergent fight or flight mode. Um, and so you're much likely to have much more likely to have healthy, constructive communication about what's going on. Yeah. And you've had some time to maybe talk to your friends about it, to go on a hike, maybe talk to your therapist about it. You've got a new perspective. You've mm -hmm. slept, you know, you're back to a baseline instead of like rushing to fix something. Also, I want to add, if you have messed up, if you have fucked up, uh -huh. you know, and your partner is angry at you and you feel guilty, you need to sit with that for a bit. Ooh, interesting. You know, like you need to sit with the fact that you messed up and that, yeah, you hurt somebody and that the job, your partner's job is not to immediately make you feel better now. Definitely not. Um, right. Are you, are you saying that you would wait to apologize until after you've sat with the guilt or bad feelings of that? No, 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 you can apologize, okay. but sometimes people will come. It's like, it's that classic story, right? Of you hurting someone. And then when they tell you how they feel about it, it now hurts you. And now the other person who's the, the grieved partner now has to come and soothe your feelings of guilt and of, of pain when really it should be focused on the other person. Does that make sense? Yes, I'm smiling having a hard because, time. No, I, I, I generally understand what you're saying. And I'm smiling because I am that person who like sues the partner who's done something. Wrong. Um, I'm guilty of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that's a that's a that's a messed up dynamic that doesn't give the the, the hurt partner the space and the attention that they probably deserve. I OK, I, I agree to an extent. Um, by and large, I agree. I think if you are squarely in the wrong, you should apologize for your actions. You should you should sit with the pain of knowing that you have hurt your partner in some way. The sitting with that will help prevent you from doing whatever thing you just did that hurt your partner again. And I do believe there needs to be a, some allowance, not allowance for abuse, not allow. Yeah, let's draw the line right there for sure. But yep. there do needs to be some allowance within a relationship for us all being human. And people fuck up sometimes. And I do think if you are super hard-lined, like if you're militant about the fact that your partner fucked up and... They need to pay for their... They need to pay? Yeah, they need to pay. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's not a winning strategy either. No, it's not. Um, because what happens when you fuck up? That's, that's coming directly back at you. Well, no, because in that in in this dynamic, when I fuck up, that then I don't I don't tend to act that way, you know. I don't I I'm gonna own my side of the story, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. So I'm not gonna use that strategy on them. 
maybe you, maybe you not. But if let's just say the average person, if the average person had a partner who was extremely punishing when they messed up, I could see the average person tending towards not reciprocating, but retaliating and kind. And that just seems like a losing dynamic as well. It it is reciprocating as well. (laughs) It's both, I guess. A reciprocal retaliation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so in this dynamic, if let's say you're, you and I are in a relationship hypothetically Hypothetically. and um, you messed up. So I don't know what, what, what did you, what did you do? it's just so impossible for me to imagine because they so rarely fuck up. Um, What did I do? I said something that hurt your feelings. I criticized your content. Okay, you criticized my content, which, I mean, that's never going to happen because of how good it is. (laughs) But, um, and I'm sad about it. Mm -hmm. And then now you are upset that I am sad? I would feel really bad. I, uh, yeah. You would feel bad that mm-hmm. I am sad because you told me my content sucks. And I would feel really guilty about my actions too. And then you would want me to soothe you because you feel bad and guilty. Not first, but eventually probably. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not I'm not encouraging for that. I'm just trying to be honest about what would likely happen in my scenario. I would I would give you a beautiful heartfelt self-aware apology that's what and and that comes from practice i have learned how to say sorry quickly and in a way that like really addresses the hurt in the relationship and if you sat there and you were like yeah you fucked up i would i would struggle with that (laughs) i wouldn't do that i i wouldn't do that though though if you didn't give me an apology and you sort of took over and now Mm -hmm. your feelings became more important than my feelings I would say, look, I understand that you feel bad about this, but I need to also feel bad about what you just said to me. Yeah, yeah. in this situation, your feelings are more important. That's hard, though. Th- okay, there's a lot of hypotheticals. Hopefully, we didn't lose anybody there. Um, okay, let's go. How to stop being passive-aggressive. I realize now I am more passive-aggressive than I care to admit. Wow, I love that. First of all, kudos to whoever wrote this question and has the self-awareness to know that they are more passive aggressive than they'd like to admit. Yeah. Um, start super small. Changing any dynamic is is hard, takes time. Don't expect that you're gonna go from being a passive aggressive to direct person overnight. Um, but give me an example about something that somebody would be passive aggressive about. I'm just trying to think of one. I guess is is being petty passive aggressive? I think they're they're in the same wheelhouse. I don't even I don't I'm like so not passive aggressive. Like all my advice people are like, dude, you're not passive aggressive, you're aggressive aggressive. <laughs> and I think that's not true. I think I'm just direct. You're direct. Um, right. So being passive aggressive is a way of not being direct. Yeah, it's it's a way of saying what you want to say without really saying it. I, I mean, the classic example is someone who like leaves notes around the house. Like doesn't want to like leaves notes around the house. It's like, hey, I noticed you didn't do the dishes last night. Can you do them today? Smiley face. Or um, how about how about dishes need to be done before going to bed? That feels direct and aggressive. To oh, me. yeah. Okay. okay. Aggressive, <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> that feels like you are saying what you want. Um, yeah, I think learning to state your needs proactively is going to be the key. Um but it's hard. It's really hard to give advice without having a specific scenario. I wish we did. Using the note example or like your partner doesn't do the dishes. And so you 
whenever that happens, you leave a little note that says like, reminder, dishes, smiley face. I don't know. That would be an example of something that I would feel is passive aggressive. Yeah, I think the smiley face is what really makes it. Yeah, I don't know know why, but I think it's because it's because you're expressing frustration with a smile. And so I think there's like an inauthenticity there. Like, you know, they don't really mean smiley face. (laughs) I know that sounds ridiculous, but you know, that's not the real emotion that's going on behind it. And so I think maybe now that I'm talking about it, maybe learning how to express the fact that you're frustrated as opposed to feeling like you have to deliver everything with a smile. Well, what you said is proactively being able to state your needs. Yeah. Or to talk about something that is frustrating or annoying or not ideal. Yeah, it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be upset. If you are those things, but you try to communicate it with a smile or in a way that is not those things, that's where I think we get into the realm of what can feel like passive aggression. So me asking you, you know, is anything wrong? And you're like, everything's fine. And then you slam the door. That wouldn't be passive aggressive. That would be... That's not passive aggressive? I don't know why. Is it? Do you think it is? I don't know. We need an example. I know. Um, so ta- <laughs> talking about, I think the, I think you, you nailed it though, talking about something that is bothering you. Yeah. In a way that's authentic to your emotion. In a way that's authentic to your emotion and that is like somewhat kind. Ideally. Yeah. Right? Like we can start with kindness to see how that goes. Always. Kindness is good. Yeah. Well, unless, yeah. Always, unless you're like really angry and it's warranted. If you, if you can manage kindness all the time, then all the time manage kindness, even through your anger, manage kindness. But I just want to be like honest and candid with your listeners. That's not always realistic and it's okay. People, you know, you can be angry and not be super kind in the moment and it'll be okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you have, you know, if you have enough trust and sort of rapport and you have enough kindness in the bank. Yeah. That's a, um, in the bank, kindness in the bank is a concept. I like to call it the like emotional piggy bank. I talk about this all the time. It's a metaphor of imagining that your relationship has a piggy bank that like sort of when you start sits at neutral and every positive interaction that you have raises the balance and like puts you in the green and every negative interaction you have puts it in the red, um, or like puts it down. And then eventually if you pass below neutral, you're in the red. And what's helpful about this is It's that shift between being in the green versus being in the red. And relationships sort of can ebb and flow with this, you know, over weeks or over years or even within the day, they can go from green to red. So it's okay if you're not always in the green. But there's something called positive versus negative sentiment override. Um, And when you're in the green, you're far more likely to be in positive sentiment override. So I'll explain this. Positive sentiment override is when you give your partner the massive benefit of the doubt. They forgot to do the dishes and you think, gosh, you know, I'm sure they just had a really stressful day. Um, I'm sure they'll remember in the morning this was an accident. You know, maybe I have the time to do the dishes. I'll make their day a little easier and I'll do it for them. That would be positive sentiment override. Negative sentiment override would look more like, how dare they rebel against me like this intentionally by not doing the dishes again. They know how stressed out I get when the kitchen's not clean. Um, and bring dishonor to my (laughs) name and this household. Precisely. And I try to encourage couples to think of like the fun times, the good times, the positive interactions, the trust building, the intimacy as putting money in the bank and keeping you in a, a more positive mentality. That leads me to think of this idea of like, 
what is it? Five compliments for one criticism. Um, there's a magic, there's like a ratio of positive to negative interactions, which is what you're or getting it's like at. Nine to one or something. It's, it's five to one. No, it's five. It's to five one. to one. It's, it's nine to one in my relationships. <laughs> um, in most relationships besides Sean's, it's five to one. And it's just positive to negative interaction. And it's the magic ratio that the Gottmans have identified, which if you can maintain a five to one ratio, you are very unlikely just statistically to get divorced. Cool. You hear that everybody? And I guess if you go over five to one, you're even better off. Presumably. Yeah. Sean's magic ratio of nine to one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Really quick, really quickly. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we're going to go back in time. Um, how to ask for space or time to process during a conflict. Just just the language. The language. Um, I use this all the time because I have a tendency to physiologically flood quickly. And I've gotten really good at identifying. And step one is identifying that in yourself. For me, that manifests in like a general physical buzzing. Like my body starts to feel like it's vibrating a little. Like maybe I'm shaking a little. And a massive chest constriction. So that's how I know it's happening for me. This can feel like getting really hot for some people. This can feel like a headache. Um, Just knowing your own signs, step one. Then when you recognize that you're entering that state, signal to your partner, I'm entering that state. Hey, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. Hey, I'm starting to feel activated or my temperature's heating up or I just need, you know, um, I need to take a pause. So all the possible ways you could ask for taking a pause. Um, I need some time to cool off. I can't really hear what you're saying right now because of my body being overwhelmed. Um, can I have a few minutes to go for a walk to collect myself? Can um, we take a break? Can we take a break? That's easy. Yeah. Um All of those work great. And I think something that's like kind of a Jedi move in relationships is to talk about this ahead of time and I like literally practice the exact language you want to use so that when you say that in the moment, your partner knows exactly what that means. Your partner knows, okay, my partner's overwhelmed. They're physiologically flooded. They can't really have this conversation. They need a break. I need to give that to them. You agree on the exact language. That helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking of when one partner wants to process a grievance while the other one's at work, which I've been the one because I've always like worked from home. And so my, yeah, you, free you schedule. know, my time, yeah, free schedule. <laughs> and I remember I, a girlfriend, I, we'd get into it in the middle of the day and I was like, I'm coming over. She's like, we cannot deal with this right, right now. now. Like I am not. And I'm like, I'm coming over. I'll be outside. I'll be outside your work. That was me. I was that guy. <laughs> I've done that. Okay. Don't do that. No. Don't do that. No, because here's what the person who does that is experiencing. They're like, how dare you prioritize your work above our relationship? Our relationship should take the first priority in your life all the time. And that's simply not possible. There are moments of the day where the relationship needs to shift priorities. It doesn't mean overall the relationship has taken a backseat of priority. But when you're in a meeting with your manager and they're talking to you about whatever thing you're executing on work, you can't be thinking to yourself, gosh, what are the things that I can do to make my partner feel super loved today? You need to be focused and in the moment. Um, 
And if you are the person who asks your partner to address something while they're at work, you're basically saying, I need you to force rank your life right now. And you're kind of illustrating a lack of trust that when the time is more appropriate, their priorities will shift back into the more natural order, which likely places the relationship first. Yeah, I was also just so uncomfortable with what was going on that I wanted it to be resolved right away. Yeah. I needed to be soothed right away while she um, was at work. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been there. Poor guy, poor guy. <laughs> okay, so thoughts on taking a break in a relationship. I'm scared to do it, but could be good. That's funny, um, funny turn of words. I've worked with couples for a few years now. Um, I have recommended taking a break once in that scenario the couple was very unsure of whether or not they wanted to separate but their dynamic when they were together was very destructive and also very anxious so super afraid to lose each other holding on very tightly but causing a lot of damage. And part of them, part of both of them, were saying, I don't know if this is good for us. I think maybe we should separate, take a break. And in that scenario, my opinion was by taking time apart, stepping away from this dynamic that was nearly impossible for either of them to shift, that would help them be of clearer mind about what they really wanted, whether or not they wanted to stay in the relationship and work through it or not. But because they were so stuck in this dynamic, they really couldn't like stick their head above water to see clearly what was going on. Um, what do you think? Trial separation. <laughs> yeah, basically. I think that a break is, you know, I used to say like, oh, a break is, is a breakup, right? Mm -hmm. You don't believe in people getting back together. I don't believe in people getting back together that much. I just haven't seen the evidence. You yeah, know, the yeah, data yeah. doesn't doesn't suggest <laughs> that that happens very often. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I have not looked at the data, but I just don't think. You know, it's in a gut feeling. Yeah. It's a gut feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in my experience. Um, but I think a break could be good as long as you're very clear about how long is the break, what is the intention of the break, mm -hmm. what do we want to accomplish during the break and what are the rules of engagement? What are the boundaries? What's the playing field, right? Are we taking a break to see other people? Are we taking a break to just ha to get some space from the relationship where we don't have to be processing or creating conflict or like trying to resolve things that are unresolvable? Mm -hmm. Do we just want to feel like, what does it feel like to not have to be responsible for a person for a month or two weeks? Um, what does not texting someone every day feel like? Right. Yeah. Um, but we need to be clear about what are the rules? Is this like, you know what, let's just take a break and date and go on a few dates. Maybe that's part of the, I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't see a massive downside to taking a break. I don't like, again, I also haven't reviewed the data on whether or not taking a break always works out and or what the, what the odds of it working out in separation versus, um, reconnection are my my gut says a lot of breaks end up in separation but that's okay if, if that's the way that it goes take, it was going to happen anyways it was going to happen anyways and if taking a break helps you adjust to what might be an extremely large life transition great 
The only thing is if don't do what I did, which is get broken up with, but think it's a break when it was really a breakup. Don't do that. That's what I did with the same woman that, that wouldn't meet me in the middle of her workday. How did that happen? Well, we broke up. And then I think we agreed to see each other in six months, but I sort of thought that we were getting back together in six months. Interesting. And we didn't. She fully ghosted me that day. So, <laughs> so and she, she, she has a, a history of being flaky and like it just uh. it, it kept playing itself out six months later. So for six months, I was like kind of on standby. And that was, I put myself there. Let's be clear. She broke up with me. But in my head, I was like, this is a break. So don't do that. If if someone's breaking up with you, accept it, uh, no matter how painful it is, because that is going to help the healing process. I agree completely. Um, okay. If I feel like I'm being cheated on. Ooh, feel like. strong, Strongly suggestive word. Do I trust my gut or rational mind slash evidence? And let's be clear, this is coming from someone who appears to be a man. That's not your only two options. Trust your gut or what was the second one? Or trust the rational mind slash evidence. The other option is cheat. Start cheating. Oh, to get back. another. To just sort of be proactive about. Yeah. So that so that if they're going to hurt you, you hurt them first. If they are cheating, then at least you're not the only one. Right. Um, There there must be a a fourth option. (laughs) No, that's uh, that's not what I would say. I would say. If I were this person, first of all, the fact that you're feeling like they might be betraying you, it is possible that that is indicative of something that's really going on in the relationship. Whether or not that's your partner cheating on you, I could not say. But it's possible that you feel unattended to, deprioritized, put on the back burner, any of those. And... That might be leading you to the conclusion, oh, if they're not giving me this attention, where is that attention going? Mm, Interesting. But that doesn't mean that your partner's cheating. That's right. It could mean that. It could, but it doesn't necessarily. And I would say the third option to all of this would be, hey, partner, I've been feeling unattended to, uncared for, deprioritized, or, or like, You've been being kind of sketchy with your phone or whatever the thing is. I've been feeling that way. Um, and I would like to talk to you about it. Um, do you think something has shifted within our relationship? Yeah, or something like my fear, the story I'm telling myself is that you're giving somebody else the attention that you used to give me. Yeah. And that might not be true. That's just how it feels right now. Yeah, that one's good. It. Um, that one's good. I feel like that one is the most honest and authentic to the person who feels that way. Um, might feel like an accusation to the other person. And so what if it does? Let me, let me, let's push back on like, so what if it does feel like a little bit of an accusation? I, so I, okay. I I do want to recognize that I come from, you know, my experience is, is that I have been in very loving, trusting relationships, yeah. all, all of them, except mm-hmm. for, I mean, even when I was young, like they were all loving and trusting. I've never had any abuse, never had any sort of like 
trauma or mm. manipulation, like none of that stuff, right? So for me to like accuse a partner, well, first of all, it would have to you know, be serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there's enough love in the bank to be able to weather that. Yeah, I, first of all, I'm really glad that that's been your experience. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 so what if it does, um, you know, so what if it does? It, it, it might be more likely to lead to conflict, but conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. And if it gets you to addressing the underlying emotion that's going on, great. But what I would say is if you say that and the conversation starts to devolve into how could you accuse me of that? What have I even done to illustrate or demonstrate to you that I am cheating? Um, when would I have had the time? Details like that. That's when we're starting to shift into what's not super productive. Right. When the thing to really talk about is he's not feeling prioritized or he's feeling distrustful. Something's happening. And that's what I would really like in order to have my hunches that the best possible outcome would be as a result of focusing on that emotion or unmet need. Yeah. But what if they are cheating? Then they're cheating. And here's what I would say about and they're that. Not gonna, they're not going to tell you about it. They're going to lie. I know. It's like almost always cheating gets discovered, not disclosed. Um, You're full of these. Uh, these you've got frameworks and, <laughs> and strategies and quotes. And I'm just, um, I'm just trying to bring information to your listeners. Um, this is something I want to say about cheating. This is something that I've practiced myself because I've struggled with jealousy and distrust in the past. And my biggest fear when that's happening for me is looking like the fool, both in the relationship and to anybody outside the relationship, being the person that's being cheated on and having being judged for that, but also like having been the person who had the wool pulled over their eyes. And the reality is nobody looks at a cheating situation and looks at the person who was betrayed and says, what an idiot. How did they not know? I can't believe they were so blind to this. What they do almost always is, gosh, what an asshole for cheating on them. I can't believe that. It is okay to trust your partner and risk being a little bit fooled. That's not dishonorable. There's nothing um, embarrassing about that. Being a trusting partner is a quality to be admired. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, you do. We, I mean, we talked about this yesterday when you were, you're like worried about what other people think of you <laughs> and of your relationship. Mm-hmm. So I learned this a long time ago. What other people think of me is none of my business. Yeah. And I, I learned that in 12-step recovery and I like it. I mean, I don't, I do care what other people think of me. Don't get me wrong. Like I read the comments because I care what other people think of me. You have a rule um, about only responding once to prevent yourself from caring too much about. That's you're right. I, I learned that from Guy Kawasaki. who wrote the book, Ape, author, publisher, editor. And one of his suggestions was, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a content creator or you're in the public sphere and only reply to a comment once so it doesn't become a like a back and forth, a conversation or like a war, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's not good advice for if you're in a relationship. Mm-hmm. It does require some back and forth. Um, I have never been cheated on that I know of. Okay. Would you want to know? Like now in retrospect, would you want to know? 
Sure. Yeah, why not? Okay. I'd be like, who? With who? How did it happen? How did I, I not know? I just want to go on record and say, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I'm good. <laughs> okay, don't tell Lane, everybody. Um, <laughs> you you would prefer to keep the magic? Of my past relationships? Yeah. I would prefer to have like a more realistic understanding of what what, what was happened. going on. Yeah. Each their own. Nor have I cheated on anybody. I also have not cheated on anybody that I remember. Have you been cheated on that you know of? No. Nice. We're, I mean, we're lucky. I know. Very lucky. I feel like, I feel like that, that's like the 1% or something. 1% club. Wait, we were talking about, um, caring about what other people think of you. And I love striving for caring less about what people think of you because it can be crippling. It can prevent you from living out your life's dream. It can prevent you from really saying what you mean in an interaction. There's so many things that caring too much about what people think can be destructive for. And we are social creatures and it is like hardwired into our system to care about where we stand socially. What is our status? And so don't beat yourself up if you're the sort of person who cares what other people think. Like that's superhuman and normal. So it's, it's superhuman. Yeah. <laughs> it's very human, but it's superhuman to care a little bit less about what other people think of you. Sure. Yes. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I was just thinking actually, you know, if I found out that my partner was cheating on me, would I care what other people thought, thought or, or the story that I'm telling myself of what they think? What would the story that you're telling yourself say? Well, the, the, the classic story that like, oh, I was a fool and how could I not know and like all this stuff. And honestly, like, I mean, it's hard to say because it hasn't happened, right? But I think I'd be way more upset at my partner cheating than I would be like worried about what my neighbor Dave was thinking about. I, yeah, I think I would too, um, hopefully. But, but it happens. Okay, several things I want to say about this. It is often the case that the anger at the partner for cheating gets displaced. Yeah. Why does it go to the other person? Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so classic for someone to get mad at the person their partner is having an affair with. As what opposed to <laughs> POS? How could they do that to me? What? <laughs> they don't. Knowing they, I'm in a relationship with John or whatever. And they owe you not. I mean, they don't. You know, we all owe each other decency, but like they owe you a lot less than your partner owes you. Um, and so I think, you know, I am not an expert on this, but my hunch is that that anger that comes up, that betrayal, that hurt in a situation where someone's been um, infidelitous or has cheated is so big. It is so hard to digest, it is so hard to process that there is a fear that if they direct that at the partner, that is definitely going to result in detachment and separation. And so there is like a coping mechanism of displacing that anger to maintain the union. And that's always that's not always the best thing to do. Like sometimes if you're being cheated on, separation is a good idea. Not always. Like I'm not an advocate that if you ha get cheated on, you have to split. But um I do think it's very common for that anger to get displaced. Yeah, it's a, it's a coping strategy to keep the relationship intact. Yeah. 
It'd be harder to keep it intact if you were, you know, all that anger was placed on your partner. Yeah. And I want to say, according to Esther Perel, the state of affairs, a lot of relationships where one or more partner is infidelitous. Is that a word? I don't know. I kind of made it up. We'll see. It's nice. It, it works. It like flows. You know? Yeah. Um, they are able to like repair and keep going. Yeah, it does happen. Um, Gottman's I think it happens more, more than not is what I want to say. I don't know if it happens more than not, but it certainly happens more than people think it does. Um, I think people would be surprised. I mean, I'm a couples coach, so people come to me with like all their most intimate problems. And I am sort of of the opinion that no relationship is perfect. And a lot of couples have issues that they would prefer not to talk to their family or friends about. Um, but I think people would be surprised to find out how many of the partnerships in their life have struggled with infidelity. And I wish people were more candid about it because it's become like the cardinal sin. It's become the absolute worst thing a person can do. And it's bad. Don't get me wrong. It's a betrayal. Don't cheat on your partner. It's not a great thing to do. Um, Don't do it. Don't do it. We're not giving you a carte blanche here. No, but there are worse things than cheating. <laughs> it's not the like having her Like having herpes. Um, no, I don't know if I agree with you there, but <laughs> I don't know if I can sit with you there, but like, um, being abusive, I would argue that's worse. Um, yes, of course. driving your children drunk, that's worse. Putting anybody's life or physical safety at risk is worse. Wait, is driving drunk worse than cheating on your partner? If, I, I mean, we could really get into it. I <laughs> think really if you can. are driving drunk with your kids in the car, then yes. If you're driving drunk with just yourself, it's a little gray. But I would say, no, I, I would think still it's, yes. I think it's worse. It's bad. It's bad. I would still say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because cheating doesn't, uh, well, it's okay. We should probably stop. Yeah. Let's but, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but dry, we're not condoning driving drunk. And then just as a PSA, like, I, I don't think having herpes is bad. I just need to be clear about that. Yeah. You don't want like, people coming after you. I think you kind of announced on social media that you have it earlier. That's correct. Yes. I will announce it on my podcast. I also have herpes. <laughs> um, welcome to the club. If you're part of the club. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, any tips on this is a fun one. Okay. So it's like a palate cleanser. This is the, 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 the ginger, the pickled ginger in between the sushi, sushi rolls. Any tips on starting a relationship long distance at first met in real life a few times, still platonic, but into more. Ooh. Um, first of How all, cute is that? super cute. cute. And I'm super happy for you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think I have, a, I have a general philosophy about long distance relationships and I've worked with a few long distance couples as well. Find routines to stay in touch. Um, it doesn't need to be all the time. And in fact, I would argue that it is good to encourage each of you to continue living your separate lives while this relationship is going on. Because if you don't, you start to feel like neither of you are really living your life and you're just sort of living for a relationship that isn't physically present. But I would say use the time to really get to know each other, what each other likes, what our hopes and dreams are. Um, maybe I love, I love couples who like, have a nightly ritual where they read each other to sleep or um, some couples every night. Yeah. Like just a little bit, like 10 minutes of reading a book to somebody. I think that's really cute. Um, 
I think that couples who like watch movies together at the same time or like send each other food, like they DoorDash food for each other and then have a date. There's like all sorts of ways that you can feel as though your partner is present without them being there. Um, But also, you know, don't don't totally abandon your physical present life because a that'll give you and your partner more to discuss when you get on the phone, when you connect Um, and B you won't come to resent the long distance relationship for holding you back, which I have seen quite a bit. Yeah. Thank you. That's all very sweet. Um, I think also, you know, enjoy what that kind of structure gives you which is freedom and space to do stuff and to, you know, like enjoy the life that you have, even though your partner's not there all the time. Yeah. Right. Which is sort of just piggybacking off what you're saying. It's okay. Um, I am also not of the opinion that you need to be in constant contact with anybody, regardless of whether they're here or there. I agree. Um, I think that, uh, you know, a secure relationship and even not that secure of a relationship, if there are secure elements to it, um, we can, we don't have to talk every day. We don't even have to text every day. It's interesting. I totally agree. And I prefer slightly lower contact, particularly with texting for me. I'm a phone person, but. Is that right? That's right. Um, But I also think that people just have really different preferences here. And one is not bad. Like, it's okay if you're the sort of couple that likes to check in a few times a day and just see what's going on. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Some people prefer that to feel connected. It's It's also okay if you're the kind of couple who texts all day long. Yeah. It would not be for me because I feel (laughs) super high management and like, again, pulling me out of my physical present life, which I wouldn't want. Um, But if you're the sort of couple that does that and you're happy, live your life, be free. I think the issue is when a couple that are so mismatched in their communication desires or needs get together, which is like, hello, classic paradox, right? You're the one who wants to (laughs) chat all the time and you hook up with a sailor Mm -hmm. who's away at sea with no service for (laughs) six weeks at a time, right? Like we know because what we're doing is like we're replaying these dynamics that need need or could be healed or changed in some way. Um, Do you know the song Brandy? Like Brandy, you're a fat. You do know that song? No. Okay, well, I'm not going to sing it anymore, but it talks about a woman who falls in love with a sailor at sea. So that just really reminded me of it. And is she a daily texter? It's like the 60s or 70s, so now. But maybe she would she's have been in a modern daily, era. <laughs> she's, she's thrown many a bottles, messages in a bottle at sea. So yeah. uh, another thing about long distance, mm-hmm. um, you know, is there a plan to eventually be in the same place? I, yes, that's a really good one. Um, and that's, but, but, and before you chime in, I don't even think that that's necessary because there could be two people that just love where they live and they're happy to spend time going to each other's place f- forever, indefinitely. That could work. Do you have but experience one, with that? Huh? No. No? But I know that that exists. Yeah. Because everything, every style and desire exists. Yeah. But if you're the type of person that eventually wants to live together, then you need to tell them that. And there has to be some sort of plan to eventually make that happen. 
Yes. And, and if not a plan, an agreement to make a plan, an agreement to make a plan by when. Um, because sometimes it's hard to sort through the details of life. Like who's Whose place does it make more sense to move to? Do we want to go to a third city? Like, it's okay if you don't have that all figured out right now, but you need to have the mutual intention that that is something you will be deciding on and a rough timeline by when you will be deciding on that. Um, And it's okay. Yeah, let's check back in and, you know, at the end of the summer or something, you know, it could be, it could be like that. Yeah. And it's okay if, I mean, I know a number of couples who were long distance for, years because of life circumstance and then you know finally found a way to be together but there was always the understanding that at the end of either a military deployment or um you know graduating from a school or whatever life circumstance puts a person in another place that they will find a way to be together um that was definitely necessary for success in those cases where they wanted physical present partners yeah cool that in rituals yeah, I like the rituals. I think they're really cute. Yeah. Date night and, you know. Yeah. you like as, you, If you were dating someone locally, you would find times to date them. You would go on dates throughout the week. And so I think you'd you would make time. You would make time. And I think if you want your long distance relationship to work, you need to make time for that as well. And an analogous way. That doesn't mean stop living your life presently. I think we've covered that. And also maybe it's an, a long distance relationship with like uh, bonuses, Ooh. benefits. What's what's that, Sean? I don't know. Like maybe maybe there's like an openness mm. there where you can have you can go on dates or have sex with other people. I'm just I just throwing it out there. Just I don't spitballing. know. <laughs> I'm spitballing some open relationship stuff. I I want to be inclusive of all these other different styles of relationships. I love that. I think that's awesome. Here's something that I would say. Um, I think, and this is very much like Esther Perel influenced, but I wish that couples would revisit the contract of their relationship like once a year. Maybe you start out and it makes perfect sense for you to be super monogamous. This is the amount we want to communicate. This is how much time we want to spend together. It's very conventional. It's very traditional. But as time progresses, maybe you're starting to feel restricted, Like, it's just not working for you. And instead of immediately jumping to, I need to go find another relationship, wouldn't it be nice if we could all just turn to our partner and say, hey, can we revisit this situation and see if it still works for us? And see if there's some shifting that could take place. I wish people would just approach their relationships a bit more creatively and with a little bit less of like, well, this is what society tells me a relationship should look like. Amen, sister. I am all about that. I mean, I, I'm all about it because I know that people change mm-hmm. and shit changes. Everything changes. And I can also see a situation where after a year, one of the partners is like, well, you know, I'd really love to like sleep with another person. And then the other one's just like feels completely betrayed, even though it hasn't happened yet and can't believe that's what they want. And then the whole thing just blows up. Yeah. And I mean, if it blows, was it going to blow up anyway? Right. I mean, I, if it's if your relationship is, if it really depends, if you're feeling like you cannot imagine a lifetime of sleeping with the same person for the rest of your life, and that's going to drive you nuts, something you're going to have to address in the relationship, um, either through a conversation that opens up the possibility for that need to be met and the relationship to continue forward, or through separation. There's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of middle ground there. 
Ethic, uh, non-ethical non-monogamy. <laughs> or cheating. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I just want to present all of the options right, available. Right, right. Sean says cheat. Sean doesn't say cheat. He just I, You know what? I did actually, I did tell one of my friends to cheat. Okay. You got to walk me through that. I am super excited to hear this story. Um, she's in a unhappy marriage and her partner is not willing to do anything different. And she is not happy. She's not happy. Yeah. She doesn't want to leave. She can't leave. She's got the kids, Mm. but she also is not, there's no satisfaction there. And And she's asked for everything. Yeah. And it's just a stone wall, basically. Stone wall, no. So well, no. So I was like, well, have you considered non-ethical non-monogamy? <laughs> I'm super controversial. I love it. I, I, would, I don't always toe the party line. I know. It's great. I know. I know you don't. Um, but it's all very nuanced. You know, you have to take in all of the other stuff. It is. I, want, I would probably in that situation, and maybe you did. I would tell, I would be frank with my partner and say, listen, you're giving me nothing. I don't want to leave. I'm going to find this need met elsewhere. That that happened. Okay. Yeah. That happened. Yeah. So is it non-ethical? It's like ethical, non-ethical, non-monogamy. It's, it's in between. It's in between. <laughs> and, uh, and one thing is that Esther Perel, like this is a bit of a non sequitur, but not, not too much. Esther Perel says... You know, when, when you find out that one of your partners has been infidelitous. Mm-hmm. Uh, word, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a real word <laughs> that um, a lot of partners can work through it. But basically she says, you know, in relation to marriage, your first marriage is over. So how do you want to do your second marriage or what is your second marriage going to look like? Yeah. Would you like to, would you like to build a new one? Would you like to build a new one? Yeah. Yeah. Because the contract of your first relationship was broken. It was breached. And so you have a choice of whether or not you want to write a new one. Um, yeah, I love that perspective. And I've said it to clients before. And I think it helps. I think it helps yeah. put the past. For, forget the past. it ever happened. Now, that doesn't mean that like. Clean slate. Yeah. You know, you do. You do at some point need to forgive your partner if you want to be able to move forward. And that takes time. Um, Give yourself the time. The Gottmans will say, allow yourself to ask whatever question you want about the affair with the notable exception of like graphic sexual details because it's just not super productive. Like they would just advise against that. Um, That's hot though. (laughs) But um, allowing yourself to ask the question, you know, even what did they have that I didn't? Um, why did you stay? Um, what was it like? Um, was there a part of you that had a need met in that situation that I can't meet? Is there a need that I can't meet? All of those questions are valid and deserve to be answered. Um, but if you do want, you know, if you do want to build that new marriage, if you want to write that second relationship contract, forgiveness is going to need to be a component of that. Um, I like to say, uh, forgive, but never forget. (laughs) That sounds like you. I forgive. I just, I will always remember what you did to me. I don't know that you will because your memory is not super good. That's true. But when, (laughs) when I'm betrayed, it's the best. Mm. 
Yeah. I'll never, I will always remind you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to wrap it up. How, um, you've been fantastic. What a, what a fantastic guest. How can people find you and how can they work with you? Um, you can find me on mostly social media, Instagram and TikTok. My handle is couples coach lane. And right now I am taking on new clients. So if you're interested, you can simply click the link in my bio and you can book a session. It's very easy. Now is a good time. Now's a good time. Yeah. I now's the best time. I will very shortly um, be limiting the number of clients I take on. So <laughs> The, the 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 gates are wide open right now. <laughs> no, it's because you're getting the research p- position and you're not going to have as much time. Yes, I have a part-time research position that I'm hoping to get, fingers crossed. I mean, I'm well, yeah, fingers crossed. And You got it. You got it. We'll we'll edit this out if you don't. Okay, great. Um with at the Veterans Affairs. I've been saying Veterans Association the whole time, by the way, and it's Veterans Affair. And I said that throughout the interview process. So I'm amazed that I still potentially got the offer, fingers crossed. Um, but working with veterans who struggle with PTSD and um, how prolonged exposure therapy helps them. So that'll be exciting. Amazing. Yeah. So Couples Coach Lane mm-hmm. on Instagram and TikTok. And you make funny reels. Thank you. <laughs> where you do like the male female, you know, dynamics with the backwards hat and the mustache. Yeah. And I got a few of those good. coming. Okay, good. And then um, what does love mean to you? Oof. Is this a question you ask everybody at the end? You would know this if you'd listened to my podcast. Oh, wow. Shots fired. <laughs> I think that love. Okay. To me. We'll talk about romantic love because love could mean a lot of different things. This is open to your interpretation. I think love helps to give us a place in the world. And it sort of is like with it, we feel more capable in our lives of achieving whatever it is we're hoping to set out to achieve um, than without it. That's good. You like that? They're always so good, but that's a good, that's a, that's a great, that's a great one. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. This has been very fun. Thank you for having uh, me. Thank you. F- yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for your wisdom and your time.